This is Naima Novetsky from TanakhStudy.com. Over the last couple of classes, we have been looking at Vayikra 23, the chapter which deals with the cycle of holidays. Last class, we looked into the first half of the chapter, which dealt with the season from Pesach until Shavuot, focusing on the offerings of the Omer and the countdown, of to, and the countdown to the offering of the two loaves on Shavuot. Today, we'll continue from verse 23, delving into the holidays of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, and Sukkot. The verses proceed chronologically through the year, and so verse 23 picks up with the first holiday of the month, what we refer to as Rosh Hashanah. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, shall be a solemn rest to you, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no regular work, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to Hashem. These verses tell us almost nothing about the holiday, giving it a date, the first of the seventh month, but not even a name. The only thing that we are told which gives us any information about the nature of the day is that it is a zechron shu'ah, a memorial of blowing trumpets. The verses say nothing about the things we normally associate with Rosh Hashanah, that the day marks the new year and the creation of the world, or that it is a day of judgment. In fact, not only do our verses omit these details, nowhere in all of Torah are we are told are we told that the first of Tishrei is any of these. The holiday is actually only mentioned in one other place in Torah, in Sefer Bimidbar. The verses there give us little extra information, mentioning only the Musaf sacrifices which are which are to be brought, and like here, referring to the day as a Yom Truah. So where does this idea that Tishrei is a new year come from? On one hand, Torah obviously refers to it as the seventh month, putting Nisan, not Tishrei, as the first month. Yet, the Torah also allows for more than one way of looking at the year. There, though months are counted from Nisan as a way of commemorating the Exodus, with every part of the year being dated to the month of leaving the Egyptian bondage, the Torah also recognizes an agricultural year, which has a different beginning and ending. When referring to the holiday of Sukkot, Shmuel dates it to B'tzit Hashanah, the end of the year, or B'tkufat Hashanah, the turning of the year, suggesting that the month of Tishrei is the beginning of a new yearly cycle. Tishrei begins the agricultural year when we plant the new crops. And so not only Nisan, but Tishrei and Rosh Hashanah as well can be considered the beginning of the new year. This notion of two new years, one in Tishrei and one in Nisan, leads to a dispute regarding which one marks not just the beginning of the year, but also the creation of the world. Masachat Rosh Hashanah tells us that while Rabbi Eliezer maintains that the world was finished being created in the month of Tishrei, according to Rabbi Yoshua, the world was created in the month of Nisan. The liturgy of Rosh Hashanah clearly supports Rabbi Eliezer, as we say, This is the day which is the beginning of your works, a commemoration, a commemoration of the first day. Similarly, we chant, Hayom Haratolam. Today is the conception or birth of the world. And so, the first of Tishrei has become the day in which we commemorate creation, when we think of Hashem in his role as creator and king of all that exists. Chazal add one more facet to the day, that it is a day of judgment. In Mishnah Rosh Hashanah we read, At four times of the year the world is judged. On Passover, judgment is passed concerning grain. On Shavuot, concerning fruits of a tree. On Rosh Hashanah, 
all creatures pass before him like sheep, as it is stated, he who fashions their heart alike, who considers all their deeds. And on the festival of Sukkot, they are judged concerning water. While Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot are all days of judgment regarding agricultural concerns, grain, fruit, and the rain which is necessary for all, Rosh Hashanah is set aside as a day of judgment of people. It is in this aspect of the day that it ushers in the ten days of repentance and Yom HaKippurim. As we said, though, none of this is explicit in our verses, which tell us only that the day is a zichron truah. Nonetheless, it's possible that these two words might actually hint to both Yom Hadin, Rosh Hashanah as a day of judgment, and Yom Harat Olam, Rosh Hashanah as a day in which the world was completed. The day is a day of shofar blowing. On one hand, the shofar sounds can be compared to a trumpet which heralds the arrival of a king. As we celebrate Hashem's kingship over the world, we blow a shofar announcing his presence. Others suggest that the shofar blasts are a call to repentance, reminding all to change their ways as Hashem sits in judgment. As such, the shofar relates to both aspects of the day, that it is the day of creation in which we celebrate Hashem's kingship, and a day of judgment in which we sit in awe and trepidation. Rashi further points out that the word zechron shu'ah hint to the special blessings that we add into the Amidah or Shmona Esrei prayer of Musaf and Rosh Hashanah. We add three blessings, Machiot, Zichonot, and Shofarot, blessings related to kingship, memory, and the call of the Shofar, the various themes of the day. The last two of these are explicit in the term Zichron Trua. The various facets of the day are expressed in the specific sounds made by the Shofar as well. On one hand, we have a Tkiah, a clear, loud, confident blast. On the other hand, we also blow a shvarim and a truah, a series of sighs and subs, a crying, by definition, a broken sound. One may suggest that the tekiah, the long, clear blast, is the call of the king's carnation, while the shvarim and truah are the sounds of wailing that accompany the the tshuva process. Alternatively, we might suggest that really all three sounds relate to the repentance process. Perhaps the various voices of the shofar don't just wake us up to remind us to change, but they also tell us how. Because to change, to change, one needs both the crying of the shvarim and the confidence of the tekiah. One needs to be humble enough to recognize the need for improvement. One needs to be broken and able to cry over one's mistakes. But that alone is not enough. If one only sees the negatives, if one only cries, if one is too broken, It can lead to despair, to paralysis, and to the inability to change. And so, one also needs the confidence of the tekiah, the focus on the positive, the recognition that one is worthy of putting in the effort to change, and that one is capable of accomplishing it. And with change should come atonement, which takes us to the next holy day of the chapter, Yom HaKippurim. Verse 26. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, However, on the 10th of the 7th month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict yourselves, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to Hashem. You shall do no kind of work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before Hashem, your God. These few verses speak of three obligations relating to Yom HaKippurim. That one must afflict oneself, bring an offering, 
and not engage in creative work. We are also told of the nature of the day. It is a Yom HaKippurim, a day of atonement. The verse does not explicate the nature of the afflictions or what is included in the command, but the Mishnah Mesachat Yomah teaches, Yom HaKippurim asor ba'achila uvishtia uvechitza uvesicha uvenilata sandal uvetashmish hamita. There are five prohibitions. One may not eat or drink, wash oneself, anoint oneself, wear leather shoes, or have sexual relations. The next couple of verses speak of the punishment for transgression. Verse 29. For whoever it is who shall not afflict himself on that same day shall be cut off from its people. Whoever it is who does any kind of work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. These verses mandate that the punishment for doing both work on Yom HaKippurim and for not afflicting oneself is death. Chazal learned that the punishment of karet, being cut off from one's people, applies only to transgressing the prohibition against eating and drinking, not to the other afflictions of the day, which are of lesser severity. The unit then ends with a repetition of the day's prohibited actions. You shall do no kind of work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Shabbat Shabbaton Hulachem, Binitem et Nashotechem. Bittish Allah Chodesh Be'erev Ad Erev Tish Betu Shabbatchem. It shall be a Shabbat of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves. In the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Shabbat. This last verse is somewhat troubling, as it appears to contradict verse 27, which set the tenth of the month as the date for Yom HaKippurim. While this verse appears to state that the Shabbaton of Yom HaKippurim and the command to afflict oneself takes place not on the 10th, but on the 9th. Chazal learned from this that just as there is a prohibition to eat and drink on Yom HaKippurim, there is a positive obligation to eat on the eve of Yom HaKippurim on the 9th. The Gemara teaches, Rav Chia Bar Difti said, It says, and you shall afflict yourself on the 9th. Now on the 9th do we fast? Do we not fast on the 10th? Rather, this is to tell you that anyone who eats and drinks on the ninth, the, crypt, the scripture considers it as if he fasted on the ninth and the tenth. We'll return to this idea and see how to understand this obligation in a minute. As we can see from the verses we just read, our chapter's discussion of Yom HaKippurim focuses not on the atoning part of the day, but rather on the Isor Melacha, the prohibition to do work, and the necessary afflictions. This is actually not so surprising since we have just read at length about the atoning aspects and service of the day in Vayikra chapter 16. The verses though do beg the question of the nature of these afflictions. Why are we commanded to refrain from food and drink, washing, anointing, and the rest? It sounds as if Yom HaKippurim is meant to be a day of suffering, but why? According to some, the afflictions really should be understood straightforwardly. Part of the atoning process involves suffering. The discomfort caused by the, cast, by the fast and the other prohibitions are meant to motivate one to repent. The day is meant to be one of pain and anguish as we reflect on our many sins. According to this understanding, the obligation to eat the day before Yom HaKippurim is also related to suffering. The Shibolei HaLeket and Rabbara Halevi Epstein, author of the Torah Tmimah, suggest that one eats a lot before the fast in order that one will suffer even more on the day of the fast itself. The Torah Tamima writes, and the commentators explain that a fast which comes after a day of excessive eating and drinking is more difficult. 
Similarly, it is now understood that one who eats and drinks on the ninth, it is as if he fasted for the ninth and the tenth, because the fast on the tenth is harder for him, and therefore the fast on the tenth counts for him for two fasts. Others disagree, claiming that the day is not meant to be one of suffering and anguish, and as such, the so-called afflictions are not mandated with the goal of causing discomfort and pain. In line with this idea, Rashi suggests that the obligation to eat on the ninth is actually in order to make it easier for us to fast the next day. We eat a lot so that our bodies will be able to physically endure the toll of fasting. Feeling afflicted, then, is not the goal. Others go even further and understand Yom HaKippurim to be a day of rejoicing, a festival. As with all festivals and Shabbatot, one is commanded to both honor it and to take physical pleasure in it. In explaining the, re the reason for the mitzvah to eat on, on Erev Yom HaKippurim, Rav Yosef Karo writes, As for the mitzvah of eating and drinking on this day, it is intended to demonstrate that a person is at ease with and ready to receive Yom HaKippurim, and that he happily anticipates the day because Israel is, is being given the opportunity for atonement. And Yom HaKippurim itself, it is impossible to honor the day with food and drink in the way that we honor the other festivals. One must therefore honor it on the preceding day. Yom HaKippurim is understood as a happy day, since we have been given the opportunity to repent on it. It deserves to be honored like all other days, but due to the technicality of the need to fast, the eating and drinking that normally accompany a festival happen on the day before. The obvious question, according to this view, is why then do we fast at all? The verses appear to connect the so-called afflictions with one other aspect of the day, the need to abstain from work. In verse 32, the command is sandwiched by the concept that Yom HaKippurim is a Shabbat Shabbaton. In earlier classes, we explained that this refers to a day in which all creative work, including cooking, is prohibited. The laws of Inui, then, might be intrinsically related to the concept of Yom HaKippurim being a Shabbaton. In fact, when the Rambam speaks of the laws of Yom HaKippurim, he refers to them as Hachot Shvita Ta'asor. And when he speaks of the obligation to fast, he uses that same root Shabbat. Mitzvat Aseh Acharet Yish B'Yom HaKippurim, Behi Lishbot Bo Me'achila Ushtia. A positive commandment on the days of Yom HaKippurim is to stop for eating and drinking on it. As such, the various prohibitions are not meant to be viewed as afflictions, but more simply as a rest or refraining from something. And this resting or refraining might have the same positive goal that refraining from work has on Shabbat. It is a means of sanctifying the day and distinguishing it from the rest of the work week, not a means of causing suffering. The Ritva writes that the abstentions from physical pleasures are meant to bring us closer to the status of angels. On Yom HaKippurim, we try to achieve the heights of spirituality and we're compared to angels. When Moshe went up to Mount Sinai to receive the tablets, and later when he ascended to attain forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf, he removed himself from the world around him, abstaining from food and drink for 40 days. On Yom HaKippurim, we too withdraw from day-to-day -day activities, remove ourselves from all worldly matters and physicality, eating, drinking, care of the body, and the like, so as to be fully devoted to God. One day a year, we attempt to be purely spiritual beings as we give ourselves wholly to Hashem. The next holidays discussed in our chapter are Sukkot and Shemini Yatzeret. Verse 33. Daber Hashem Daber 
בחמישה עשר יום לחודש השביעי הזה, חג הסוכות, שבעת ימים להשם. השם ספוק to משה saying, speak to the children of Israel and say, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is a feast of tents, for seven days to השם. ביום הראשון מקרא קודש, כל מלאכת עבודה לא תעשו. On the first day of your holy convocation, you shall do no regular work. שבעת ימים תקריבו אישה להשם. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to השם. ביום השמיני מקרא קודש יהיה לכם, והקרבתם אישה להשם עצרתי, כל מלאכת עבודה לא תעשו. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation to you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to השם. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no regular work. These verses speak of two connected holidays, the seven-day holiday known as Sukkot and the one-day holiday that follows called Shmini Atzeret. This format is somewhat parallel to Pesach and Chag HaMatzot. There too we have the one-day Pesach celebration followed by the seven-day holiday of Chag HaMatzot. The next two verses are an interim summary. Verse 38. These are the appointed feasts of Hashem, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to Hashem, a burnt offering, a meal offering, a sacrifice, drink offerings, each on its own day. Milvad Shabtot Hashem, Milvad Matnotechem, Milvad Kol Nidrechem, Milvad Kol Nidvotechem, Asher Tidnu Hashem. Besides the Sabbaths of Hashem, and besides your gifts, and besides your vows, and besides your free will offerings, which you give to Hashem. As we spoke about in a previous class, The discussion of Sukkot is broken up by this concluding statement, which serves to hint to the fact that the chapter's holiday cycle is really made up of two distinct cycles, the three pilgrimage festivals and the holidays of Tishrei. Each gets its own introduction and conclusion. Since Sukkot falls into both categories, it is discussed twice, once before this conclusion and once afterwards. The second mention of Sukkot discusses the specific laws of the day. Verse 39. אך בחמישה עשר יום לחודש השביעי, ואספכם את צבועת הארץ תחוגו את חג השם שבעת ימים, ביום הראשון שבתון, וביום השמיני שבתון. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruits of the land, you shall keep the feast of Hashem seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. לקחתם לכם ביום הראשון, פרי עץ הדר, כפות תמרים, וענף עץ אבות, וערבי נחל. You shall take on the first day the fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before Hashem your God seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to Hashem seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall keep it in the seventh month. This verse speaks of the mitzvah of taking four species, identified by Chazal as a lulav, a closed frond from a palm tree, hadasim, myrtle branches, aravot, willow branches, and an etrog, the fruit from a citron tree. Unfortunately, the verses do not explain how these are connected to the holiday or what they represent. Besides our verse, there's one other place in Tanakh which alludes to these species. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15. Ezra the scribe reads from the Torah to the fledgling nation which has returned from exile and teaches them about the holiday of Sukkot. He then tells them, He tells them to go to the mountain and take these various branches 
in order to make Sukkot. This list does not totally, totally overlap with that in our verses, adding olive branches and omitting the pre-Eitz Hadar, known today as an etrog, though more literally translated as a fruit of a splendid tree. Both do mention Tzmarim and an Eitzavot. Here, though, the people are told to use these to build Sukkot, while the Torah only says that they are part of the rejoicing of the holiday. Many have tried to understand the connection between the sources and whether anything can be learned from the Chamya as far as both the nature and deeper meaning of the commandment. The Karaites and Samaritans, two sects of Judaism who do not hold by the oral law, identify the two verses and learn from the Chamya that the four species are meant to be used in building Sukkot and Tzach, the covering on top. They do not separately do what we refer to as Nitilat Lulav, the taking and weaving of the four species. If one visits a Samaritan Sukkot today, which are interestingly built inside rather than outside the home, one will see a roof made of an array of various fruits, the Pirot Hadar of our verse, understood not to refer only to the etrog, but to any beautiful fruit. Chazal read the verses differently, suggesting that in the Chemya, some of the items on the list were meant for building, others to be used as chak, tzach, and others for the waving of the four species. Not all the species are mentioned, since some were readily available and did not entail going to the mountain to acquire. According to Chazal, then, the four species is a distinct mitzvah, not connected to the actual building of the sukkah. The mitzvah appears to be related to the agricultural component of the holiday, that sukkot is chag ka'asif. As we gather our crops into our homes, we also take some vegetation and greenery to wave in an expression of thanksgiving and praise to God. Some have suggested that these four species specifically were chosen since they depend heavily on having a strong water source and Sukkot is the holiday in which we pray for rains of blessing. Moving to the mitzvah of the Sukkah, of the sukkah itself. Verse 42. Shivat yamim, kol basukot. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native-born in Israel shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. And the chapter concludes by Daber Moshe at Moadei Hashem of Bnei Israel. Moshe declared to the children of Israel appointed festivals of Hashem. As opposed to the mitzvah of the four species, which was related to the agricultural component of the holiday, the command to sit in Sukkot is explicitly related to a historical event, the fact that we sat in Sukkot in the wilderness. There is a famous dispute regarding the nature of these Sukkot. According to some, the verse is referring to the clouds of glory which protected the people, while according to others, the word should be understood literally to refer to the huts in which the people lived during the wilderness period. Either way, though, the holiday is clearly meant to commemorate God's providence and protection of the nation throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. This event, unlike the Exodus, did not, place, did not take place on any one day of the year, which makes us question, why then did Hashem decide that it should be commemorated specifically in the month of Tishrei? Rashbam gives a beautiful answer to this question. He writes, when you gather the produce of your land and your houses are full of all good things, grain, wine, and oil, that is the appropriate time for you to celebrate Sukkot so that you remember that I made the Israelites live in booths for 40 years in the wilderness, without any settlements and without owning any land. As a result of this, you will give thanks to the one who allows you to own your own lands and your own houses 
which are filled with all good things. And do not say to yourselves, my own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me. That is why at harvest time, they're to leave their houses that are full of all good things and live in booths, so that they will remember that in the wilderness, they had no land and no houses in which to live. It is for that reason that God set the holiday of Sukkot at the time of the harvest of the threshing floor, so that their hearts will not grow haughty. According to Rashbam, Hashem intentionally wanted to connect the historical component of the holiday of Sukkot with the agricultural season of Chag Ka'asif. After gathering a successful harvest into their homes, when they are comfortably surrounded by tons of good, the nation is in danger of saying, thinking that their success is due only to themselves and not to God. Thus, it is specifically at this juncture that Hashem tells the nation to leave those homes and go outside to recall the wilderness period, a period in which it was obvious that all provisions were provided for by Hashem. As they think about how Hashem cared for them in the wilderness, they will recognize that the good that, the good that they have now is also due to Hashem and not themselves. Moving to one last mitzvah of the day, one that is not unique to Sukkot, yet highlighted here more than elsewhere, Hashem, and you shall rejoice in your holidays. In three separate verses, the Torah dictates us to be happy on Sukkot, giving the holiday its secondary name, the time of our rejoicing. What does this mitzvah of being happy entail? Is Hashem really commanding us to feel an emotion? Rashi explains that actually the verse is not a command, but a promise. Hashem is not demanding that we be joyous, since that might not be subject to our will. Rather, He is promising us that we will feel that way on the holiday. Others pick up on the phrase, Lifnei Hashem, suggesting that Hashem is not commanding us simply to be happy, but rather to recognize that the source of our happiness is God. As Rashbam pointed out, on Sukkot, we must recognize that all that good which we gather into our homes is not due to us, but to Hashem. We must therefore rejoice in Him and before Him. A different understanding of the mitzvah of happiness emerges from the Rambam's discussion of the mitzvah. He notes that elsewhere, when the Torah speaks of being joyous on the holiday, it mentions both an individual's own family and the Levite, widow, orphan, orf, orphan, and sojourner. To really fulfill the obligation of rejoicing then, one needs to include these less fortunate members of society in our happiness. The commandment is not just to be happy, but to make others happy. When we celebrate our full homes, we must remember that not everyone's home is just as full. We must not only enjoy the gifts that we have been given, but also give of our gifts to others. I want to close with a brief discussion of the final holiday of Tishrei, the one-day festival of Shemini Atzeret, which is spoken about in just half a verse in our chapter. From the Torah itself, we know almost nothing about the holiday, except that it is referred to as an Atzeret. Rashi, following the Midrash, understands the word Atzeret to mean to retain or stop. And he says that Hashem instituted the holiday because he did not want to let go of us. He compares it to a king who invites his son to spend the week. When, a time, when it comes time to go home, the king asks his son if he could please stay yet another day because it is so hard to depart. So too, Hashem asks us, after the month of Tishrei filled with holidays, could we please have just one more day together? In our next class, we'll look at Vayikra chapter 24 which speaks of three seemingly unrelated topics, 
the Ner Tamid, the continuous light, the Lechem HaPanim, the showbread, and the story of the blasphemer.